After the devastating wildfires in Australia and California last year, there was a surge of articles about what we can learn from indigenous communities about fire and landscape management as fire seasons grow longer and more dangerous. In fact, there's a growing interest in indigenous knowledge about the environment in general for several reasons. For starters, they've taken much better care of the planet than colonial nations. 80% of the world's biodiversity today is maintained on indigenous lands. Many indigenous communities have thousands of years of accumulated knowledge about their climates and ecosystems, with lifeways that aren't based on the extractive practices of capitalism. Traditional ecological knowledge, or TEK, is a field of research that seeks to understand how indigenous cultural practices, beliefs, and knowledges can inform ecological management and sustainability. TEK has been around for decades, and it's gone through its own growing pains as settler scientists and managers grappled with how to reconcile oral tradition with Western science, or with issues of ownership and intellectual property. Settlers can be disrespectful, or even hostile to the idea of oral knowledge, misconstruing it as a game of telephone, rather than the accumulation of generations of highly vetted, peer-reviewed environmental expertise. But Potawatomi scholar-activist Kyle White reminds us that in the last centuries, indigenous knowledges have been disrupted by settler colonialism, not only through genocide and land theft, but stolen children, murdered and missing indigenous women, language suppression, and other crimes that continue today. It's important to take a moment here to recognize the resilience of indigenous communities in the face of this ongoing violence. Indigenous peoples very much exist in the present, despite repeated efforts to cast them in the past tense. Returning to Kyle White, in a 2017 paper, he reminds us that anthropogenic climate change is an intensification of environmental change imposed on indigenous peoples by colonialism. In other words, it's a harm that's actively perpetrated by settlers extracting fossil fuels from stolen lands in service to colonial goals. Meanwhile, indigenous peoples, and especially indigenous women, have borne the impacts of climate change the earliest and the hardest through rising sea levels, disruptions to plants, animals, and water, and other threats. Colonialism has also undermined indigenous resilience to climate change. Anthropologist Elizabeth Marino has worked with the community of Shishmaruf in Alaska for over a decade. In talking with villagers, Marino found that for thousands of years, the Inupiaq people had a mobile way of life that allowed them to adapt to climate change. But because of the way that colonization played out in Alaska, particularly around decisions of development, they've become tied to a village that is literally falling apart due to sea level rise. Marino has argued that situations like Shishmaref's are just as much an outcome of history as they are of changes in the weather or sea level rise. Many Native communities have taken matters into their own hands to organize and plan for climate change, like coming up with tribal climate resiliency plans, building networks like the Indigenous Peoples Climate Change Working Group, or the Institute for Tribal Environmental Professionals. And as more non-Native scientists, planners, and managers recognize the value of Indigenous climate knowledges, they're reaching out to these communities, looking to learn, exchange ideas, or collaborate. But as Kyle White has noted, Without addressing colonialism, climate action can be just as harmful as climate denial, and the relationships among colonial and tribal governments are not always conducive to indigenous climate justice, lacking consent, trust, accountability, or reciprocity. 
In a 2019 study of the partnerships between climate science organizations and Native American tribes, social scientists Scott Califatis and colleagues found that while both groups felt that the benefits of such collaborations outweighed the harms, tribes were much more concerned about potential harms than the climate scientists were. In another study, Climate scientist Dominique David Chavez and geographer Michael Gavin found that 87% of climate change studies practice what they call an extractive model, where outside researchers essentially take indigenous knowledge with minimal participation from the communities who hold that knowledge, often failing to even share their findings back to the communities. But when non-native scientists actively partnered with indigenous collaborators to co-produce questions and knowledge, the outcomes were far better for indigenous communities. These findings are a powerful reminder that modern partnerships run the risk of repeating or exacerbating colonial harms if we're not careful. Definitions, understandings, values, and ways of knowing may be very different between indigenous and settler cultures. And when they conflict, settlers have to be willing to take a back seat. Importantly, settler scientists have a responsibility to undo colonial harms whether we're actively partnering with Indigenous communities or simply working on lands that belong to Indigenous peoples. Things are changing. Land acknowledgements led by efforts in New Zealand, Canada, and Australia are finally beginning to be adopted here in the United States. In preparing this essay, I realized our own mission here. Warm Regards is recorded and produced in Lincoln, Nebraska, Bangor, Maine, Seattle, Washington, and Ypsilanti, Michigan, on the homelands of the Oto, Pawnee, Sioux, Penobscot, Duwamish, Ojibwe, Odawa, Potawatomi, and Wyandotte peoples. We failed to even acknowledge this fact, nor have we honored the resilience and stewardship of the tribal communities whose land supports our work. That's an omission that we are rectifying going forward, starting with this episode. It's also important to remember that land acknowledgements are a starting point, not an end point in decolonization. And as Eve Tuck and Wayne Yang remind us in a 2012 article, decolonization is not a metaphor. It's not just about diversifying our syllabi or updating our Twitter handles with tribal names. Decolonization is the process of a state's withdrawal from the land it occupies. It's a central concept to the land back movement which has the goal of getting indigenous lands back into indigenous hands. It means recognizing indigenous sovereignty, whether by honoring broken treaties, returning stolen artifacts, or in many cases, the literal repatriation of the remains of native ancestors back to native communities. And for scientists and others working on climate change, it means moving away from extractive models to support indigenous sovereignty through respectful, long-term relationships putting an end to parachute science, and recognizing indigenous autonomy over their lands, artifacts, knowledges, and data. Welcome to Warm Regards. I'm Jacqueline Gill. And I'm Ramesh Longani. For this episode, we're exploring issues related to indigenous climate knowledges here in the United States, and how diverse forms of data are central to how tribal nations are adapting to a warming world. We start with a conversation with a Lakota scientist about how tribal communities are using traditional ecological knowledges to prepare for climate change, both together and in partnership with settler scientists. Then we talk with the Diné geneticist and bioethicist about indigenous data sovereignty and its connection to issues of tribal sovereignty. We also talk about what settler scientists should know if they want to develop ethical, respectful partnerships with indigenous communities. 
Our first guest is James Rattling Leaf Sr., a member of the Rosebud Sioux Tribe and coordinator of climate partnerships for the Great Plains Tribal Water Alliance at the North Central Climate Adaptation Science Center in Boulder, Colorado. James has decades of experience in indigenous ways of knowing through his work as director of the Geospatial Applications Center at Sinta Gleska University, as a fellow of the International Indigenous Resource Management Institute, and as cultural advisor to the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration's National Integrated Drought Information System, just to name a few. We talked with James about his experiences working with tribal communities in building climate resilience through traditional ecological knowledge. James, thank you for being on our show. It's an honor to talk with you today. To start us off, can you tell us a little bit about who you are and how you got started on this path? What led you to working on how indigenous communities are using and sharing traditional ecological knowledge? Well, thank you, Jacqueline. And let me uh, begin by introducing myself, which is, you know, part of our culture protocol. Um, I am Lakota, so I would say, James I'm happy to be with you today and to talk about this um, this issue, this um, opportunity called traditional knowledge. Uh, traditional knowledge has always been uh, with my people, in particular Lakota people here in the Great Plains. In my work at the North Central Climate Adaptation Science Center, uh, we've been very uh, adamant and deliberate and intentional in how we approach the whole idea of traditional knowledge and how we use that for our, our climate adaptation planning, research, education, and outreach. The Lakota people, for instance, have uh, began uh, systematically to plan for climate on our reservations here this past year. And I can use that as an example of how we're approaching and working with our people. I think it's important for the audience to know that we don't separate knowledge from people. Hmm. Um, it's really important that the people go with the knowledge and knowledge goes with the people. I think that's a really important point that when we talk about it, you know, the people, the community, the culture, the history, uh, the custom protocol, all are part of that discussion. And know that in particular, Lakota people have expressed in so many ways the importance of not only practicing our traditional knowledge we do, but also the protection of that and really understanding how uh, that knowledge gets transferred to the next generation. So we find ourselves in this time of climate adaptation, you know, understanding the vulnerability of our communities to a changing climate, which means increased natural hazards, natural disasters. And I think it's important that the audience knows as well that the issues of traditional knowledge is really an important contributing uh, factor to all climate research in particular. And so I think we all have to be mindful that, you know, this is another way of knowing, uh, another way of understanding. And I think the more that shows like this will promote the importance of traditional knowledge and, and folks like me who are advocates of, of sharing and utilizing, but also doing it in a respectful and reciprocal way, um, I think we can make progress in the whole area of climate adaptation. So, James, you do a lot of great work with indigenous communities around climate change and climate adaptation. I'm curious to know, how did you get started doing this work? Yeah, well, Ramesha, you know, I think it's been inculcated into me from the beginning of, of my life. Growing up on a reservation in South Dakota as a tribal member, you always listen to your elders and your parents and those who uh, know in your community. And in those teachings, you're always reminded, again, daily about the importance of um not only your life, but also contributing what you know uh, of your life to the community and, and to the nation. Now that we find ourselves, you know, in this time in 2021, uh, we also recognize the importance of bringing other additional 
knowledge and, and, and things into that. So, so I, uh, I pursued college, a Western form of education in my life, but I also went to a tribal college and university. And I would also promote that idea here to your audience that we have 35 tribal colleges and universities across America. And most of these universities are on tribal reservations. Most of them are in Northern Great Plains. Mm-hmm. And so I, I went through school there. And why that's important to me was that it brought together higher education and culture, higher education and traditional knowledge. And it was really a, an outgrowth, a response to a Western form of education. And tribal colleges are, are very successful in doing that. And so I went through that system. And when you go through a system like that, go through that process of education, you work with uh, your own elders, and you work also with Western forms of knowledge as well. So they bring those two together. Not that they change either one, but they respect the integrity of both ways of knowing. And they bring those things together, and they really allow the individual to to work with both of them. And I think that w- that was important in my development as I as I grew as a human being, as a person, to understand my place in the world. Now, as a tribal member, then I find myself in these opportunities, like working at the North Central Climate Adaptation Science Center. And those goals, again, talk about working with tribes in our region. We have we have 30, 30 plus tribes in our region that we work with, and they're all different. They're all distinct. They all have different histories. They have different cultures, different languages and such. So you have to be able to function in a culturally intelligent way to, to, to do this kind of work. So mm-hmm. I'm, I'm really grateful that the tribal colleges allowed me to learn my language, to learn my customs, but also to expose me and to provide opportunities for me to also study in a Western, so Western form for me was, was environmental science, geospatial technologies, geotechnology, geoheritage, and those sort of things. So, mm-hmm. so I got to, I got to work with those things, got to meet people, got to work with, with those systems, got to be part of research, uh, got to do internships. And so I would say, Ramesha, that I, I've really been blessed in a way to have so many different people in my educational process to help guide me, to help maybe think about the bigger questions and also to know that a lot of good work has happened in the past mm-hmm. and I get to carry that on in a way for, as a tribal person, really um, exhibiting those cultural values that promote this idea of uh, what we say is tribal self-determination or tribal sovereignty. You've been involved in a lot of different efforts working with tribal communities to adapt to climate change. Can you share some examples of the work that you've done and the impacts that it's had for your own community or others that you've worked with? That's a good question. And I think that, you know, for us on on the Rosebud, we've been able to really glean and learn from other tribes in our region of how they're dealing with climate change. Uh, For the first time, our tribe received a BIA climate adaptation planning grant. So I'm part of the leadership team to implement that. And so we just started and what has happened for me is that in my experience in this work is that it's really allowed me to study uh, other tribes and how they deal with climate change. On the Blackfeet tribe in Montana, I, I've worked with those folks and in a way, and, and, and we supported them in their way in terms of funding for how they do their climate work. And what I liked about that is they, they brought in the youth. And I think there's an important component to climate adaptation is really the defining the role of, of tribal youth in this work. And so they were able to to use um, technology like iPads to go and record interviews with elders and mm. capture those stories in a digital form. And were able to work with the elders to select the kind of information they wanted to share both internally as well as um, externally. And so there was this idea of the big term is intergenerational knowledge transfer. And I think what I've learned in this work is that with climate adaptation planning is that there has to be built into this effort to 
bringing both the knowledge holders and the youth through the work because we know that the youth will inherit a lot of this issues and but also the opportunities to work on. I would also say the, the role of renewable energy has been really interested for me in my work in terms of climate adaptation. On the Rosebud, we've been one of the leaders in renewable energy, in particular wind, in developing one of the first wind turbines in, in really the history of, of tribal renewable energy here on the Rosebud. And when, that was a very um, uh, enlightening work for me to understand sort of the issues of, of uh, policy around energy, sort of understanding the infrastructure and how uh, energy is moved from one place to the other and really understanding the difficulties of energy markets and how really a tribe can make uh, make money with that. Uh, the other point I would say in terms of my work is really working with what we call tribal historic preservation officers. These are the people that are hired by the tribe to really protect and sustain tribal cultural heritage. And now in particular with climate change. So we've been working with those folks on developing a particular vulnerability assessment tool that they can use specifically designed for the TIPO or Tribal Historic Preservation Officer. So uh, I think they're critical in anything dealing with climate because they're really responsible for all things cultural. And so, mm -hmm. but also not only on the reservation, but also in our, what we call our, our traditional homelands. So like in South Dakota, our TIPOs would work in, in the Black Hills area where I live now, would work in the Badlands area where I live now. We're very interested in what's happening on those landscapes that's impacted by climate. So I think a, 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 a vulnerability assessment what we've been working on now really begins to uh, empower tribes and really begin to broaden uh, the policy work that needs to be done because there are flora and fauna uh, on those parks that are still culturally significant to our people. And I think it's important that, that we develop these kind of uh, projects that can influence policy so that tribes can continue to have access to this flora and fauna, but also that we're, um, we're all understanding the importance of that. And I think that there's a really strong educational component to what everything I've done, uh, is including shows like this, where we, we talk about these things, we bring it to forward, and we have dialogue and discussions on the importance of traditional knowledge, the importance of tribes, and being involved in this kind of work just because of our unique relationship to the federal government. So. So it's important. So I'd say education, outreach, communication, uh, traditional knowledge, intergenerational knowledge transfer, and the role of uh, tribal colleges has been my role up to this point. Um, mm -hmm. I would also say another point I would say before I forget is that um, we're also looking at the role of data, um, the role of mm -hmm. data in all this work, uh, in particular climate data. And so that's brought a lot of different kinds of uh, discussion, concerns, and opportunities for our tribes when we talk about the role of data and data sovereignty, uh, data self-determination, data governance. So we believe that you know good data leads to good governance. And so we're also on that pathway as well to advance uh, our understanding about those things, in particular with tribes. I have a couple of questions. What do you see as the role of data in indigenous self-determination and how have indigenous communities used climate data in their own adaptation efforts? And are there particular types of data that complement traditional knowledge? One example uh, would be is, is really looking at the idea of um, uh, drought planning and drought vulnerability assessment. You know, I was part of a, a, couple of, a couple of projects here these last few years ago, working with four tribes here in South Dakota. And so we looked at um, the sort of different data sets that were used to, uh, that's used to produce a drought monitor, U.S. drought monitor. And so that, you know, precipitation, temperature, you know, those sort of things have been useful in terms of bringing you know, that into the tribal planning process. So. A lot of times we, we're finding a lot of people who are not familiar with using 
they're aware of the jump monitor, but they didn't really know how that jump monitor was put together. How was the data uh, data used to put together these maps to show um, the impacts of drought? So I think that's been very helpful to really educate uh, tribal resource managers with the four tribes that we worked with here in South Dakota. I think a lot of this, a lot of this is really educational yet, Ramesh, in terms of mm-hmm. how climate data can be useful. I think that's the pathway we're on right now to understand that. But I think that you know, with drought and uh, really those those hazards that really hit tribes hard. And that the tribes understand that tools like the drought monitors used to uh, make decisions about um, agriculture relief programs and and how funding can come to the tribes using this kind of data that's supported by the federal government and it's understood that this is what's needed i think tribes more and more are are really interested in participating and not only understanding how the drought monitor works but but maybe someday they could be authors to the drought monitor which is what we want Mm. Mm-hmm. Uh, we really want those tribal you know, managers and such in their local communities to to become authors of the drought monitor because that's one of the issues that that we face is that um, in terms of data coverage in terms of local data that's relevant to the tribes it's still not there yet and so we still need like weather stations we still need a soil moisture network and i know that's sort of been working on and coming upon but some of the issues with that is just uh, the funding and the sustainability of the station so there's a lot of work to be done, but um, we, those of us like me and others, you know, really believe in the, the role of data in this work. And we got to continue to not only educate, but also make the case why that's important. And that, that never really stops. And I think we, we need each other. We need organizations, partners to always make the case why this matters, because there's funding involved in it. There's people involved in it. These data stations are on tribal lands. And so we have to understand all that as well. And I think that also brings uh, brings forth you know, these real issues yet still facing our tribe. So, uh, so those of us are that are advocates for climate data and the use of it, we continue to go forward, but we continue to need education, I guess, with our tribes. So, James, can you talk about a particular example of a collaboration using climate data that could complement traditional knowledge to help indigenous communities with their own climate adaptation and planning? Yeah, I, I would share a little bit about the Wind River project. Um, I have relatives there on the Wind River uh, in reservation in Wyoming. They worked closely with drought monitor folks that do that, and they they were they involved in a lot of training, you know, to get the tribe up to speed on terms of how you do something called climate summaries. Also, you know, and I also learned that in that work that you know some of the tribal members I worked with on they um, they really talked about the uh, water, water being one of the um, the key uh, sectors that that need to be monitored and need to uh, be looked at for the, you know, for um, outlooks and for those sort of things. And the tribe really expressed, in, in terms of how you look at traditional knowledge, has really wanted to bring those sort of things into uh, that mm-hmm. planning process. And mm-hmm. I think that through oral through oral conversations I had that that they use um, the the jump monitor, they use climate summaries, and they use those sort of tools alongside their own traditional knowledge, and that's sort of the shared uh, among themselves. So I think that's an important point that we all have to understand that each tribe has its own way of incorporating traditional knowledge, and it's important that we respect that and that that stays with the tribe and they share, again, what they want to share. Ecological knowledges are often so specific to a local place or a community, and yet knowledge about one place might sometimes be beneficial for another place. How do you balance tribal sovereignty and sharing, both among tribal communities, but also between indigenous and settler colonial communities? 
you know, I'll, I'll give you an example of kind of what's happening. I think um, that's relevant to that question. Um, so I am a Rosebud, a Rosebud Sweet Tribe, and there's something called the Osheti Shankoi. That's one of our original um, confederacies um, that united us as as tribes. And so you have the Lakota, you have the Nakota and Dakota. At the time of contact, you know, this Osheti Shankoi was a was a confederation really to help um, support the tribe. So it's almost like an alliance. And at that time, you know, there was a vision to help support each band or each, each tribe within that Osheti Shankoi. And it was really a foundation of how decisions were made as a collective. And so there was strength in that confederacy. So when tribes had to deal with uh, with a threat or something like that, the Osheti Shankoi was a way to respond to that. And so today, in 2021, our tribes within the Osheti Shankoi are, are working to rebuild that alliance, that confederation. And that we've been gathering now for, you know, for a number of years now, really trying to organize ourselves within ourselves. How do we take this confederacy again? How do we renew it? How do we bring it back to life? We know that we have new challenges in a way to deal with um, things like climate change, like sovereignty, like protection of our lands from development, like really protecting our languages and restoring our customs and our cultures again and how we govern ourselves, dealing with um, things like missing and murdered indigenous women. Mm. All those things, you know, have threatened us and still today. And so we look at it from, at one level, we look at it from a regional or national level. We have a local level or a system level, a community level, and a family level. And so really trying to organize ourselves, again, looking back to go forward. And I think what, what we hope to do through this work really is to uh, develop unity, uh, unity with one voice. Um, we want to really promote the idea of customary law again. Things that haven't worked for us, we need to find and go back to ways that worked with us before. You know, we really, really want to encourage development of leadership. I think leadership matters now, and we need more and more indigenous leadership at all levels, not only within the Osheti Shankoi, but also in universities and governments, local governments and such, to participate in things that matter to us. I think we have to look at our treaties again. We want to look at these treaties. Treaties are, are the law of the land here in America. And so we want to enforce and strengthen those treaties because that's, that's what makes us unique as tribal people. We want science and research to inform policy. That's to make a, make a better difference for us. I think we want to look at our languages. Uh, next, I think 2021 to the next 10 years is the UN's Declaration of Indigenous Languages. So we, we understand that to be a nation, we have to retain our language, our Lakota language. So we need to increase our language speakers. I think we need to think about like what happened at Standing Rock. You know, Standing Rock really showed the world in a way that when indigenous people get organized and they stand and, and they make a statement for something important like protection of water. Uh, and also we bring in our spirituality to that. Finally, I would say is that the Osheti Shankoni really has also a global vision that we hope to connect with other indigenous people around the world you know, to learn about dealing with climate change, dealing with biodiversity issues, dealing with uh, issues with water, dealing with languages, dealing with customs, um, development, and all those sort of things, uh, data. It's a really important time for us now. And I think to your question, I mean, it's, it's a big answer to your question, but I think it's important to know that 
And that's how we're seeing the future. And we need this Oshete Shankoe really to stand up again with a strong foundation. And this could be driven by leadership and, and from the elders to the youth. It's going to be a framework of how we go forward in dealing with uh, government relations, state relations, local relations. Uh, again, it's a framework to how we want to educate our next generation of, of young people, uh, both in customary law and language, but also not afraid to look at technology and science as well. Finally, I think, again, it's really thinking about the next seven generations. Mm-hmm. You know, we have that perspective. We still do. And so things that we do today matter in the next seven generations. So, so I, to make it personal, you know, I think about my new granddaughter. You know, I mentioned mur- missing and murdered indigenous women. All these issues are related. And so now I think about more and more how I can, in my work going forward, how I can prepare and promote and advocate and amplify uh, indigenous women voices. They can do that. I just want to come alongside them and support them. And so my little granddaughter, uh, Eleanor, Eleanor Charlotte, <laughs> whatever I do, I want to make sure that that generation, especially those indigenous women, have greater and greater opportunities to, uh, to have good lives. The term co-produced knowledge is used a lot when discussing partnerships, particularly academic partnerships with indigenous communities. What does knowledge co-production mean and how can it be done in a way that ensures the partnership is truly beneficial for the indigenous community, not just the academic researchers? You know, that's that's really the, the you know, the big question. I think that, that we're all faced, those of us that are in the academy, for instance, like, like myself and others, what we try to do, and I think part of it is really is this whole idea of, of creating opportunities for scientists, researchers to begin to understand us better. I mentioned the word cultural intelligence. I think there's a really need in the academy for, for researchers to develop a greater sense of, of cultural intelligence. The second part I think that need to encourage co-production or at least to begin to think about that is that what are the sort of the institutional frameworks now in place that uh, to review that and to assess that, how that knowledge is produced, co-produced, and, and what are the benefits to indigenous people on that work? Increasingly, my work has led me to Canada. They deal with something called truth and reconciliation. So they've done the hard work of trying to understand, as a country, uh, what happened to Indigenous people through the residential school system. So there was a great mm-hmm. harmful intergenerational trauma that happened. And so out of that work, really, had, had Canada look at everything that they've done now in, 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 uh, in collaboration with Indigenous people, including what we're talking about today, about the big question of knowledge and how that's produced. And so there was a re- really a recognition that that relationships, deeper relationships need to be developed between native and non-native people. And so that, that generation of knowledge on the land, for instance, or about the land, uh, needs to be sort of sometimes need to be co-beneficial. And it needs to be recognized from the beginning that if we're going to collaborate, that has to be an outcome that, that these things also benefit indigenous people. And also, I think we have to look at the issue of knowledge sharing. So whatever we do in co-production, how is that shared? Does that benefit indigenous people, does it non-indigenous? And I think that only when we can agree in, ahead of time, only when we agree to put together agreements like memory understandings, that we can understand that. And we can, we can both agree and understand that this is both all, all our benefit. I think that really talks about values and protocols of respect. And we have to respect one another. And the more and more we do that, I think we have greater examples of co-production and co-knowledge. I think that we also have to think about the role of elders in this work. I think we need 
things like council of elders. We need circles of elders, centers, and, and academic institutions uh, need to invest in and fund and support. Because I think if we're really going to be serious about working with indigenous people and their knowledges, we have to figure out how what roles and how we respect um, elders in that in that role. I think if we're going to really sustain co-production and co-knowledge, again, we go back to the role of youth. Um, more and more, I see young indigenous people really working both with the knowledge system and with science, and they're producing things like like media, multimedia, and they're bringing story into addressing serious questions and bringing voices, and I would say authentic voices, into the conversation. As more and more non-native or settler scientists work with tribes to explore ideas of traditional ecological knowledges, I know that there are these questions that come up about sovereignty and access to information, especially because of the long histories of theft or exploitation of tribal knowledge. As more of us settler scientists reach out to build these partnerships, do we need to be prepared for the answer to be no? Well, that's a great question. Um, I guess you can say yes. I mean, you know, that obviously that's also part of the the, the equation that you, that they can get no. But I would say that to my advice to, to the young up-and-coming scientists is that they really have to, again, go back and understand the the history. They call it mm-hmm. the socio-political landscape of a, dish, a particular indigenous community or nation. I think, you know, our school system here in America, you know, has done a disservice to our young people. They don't really give them the full history. And I think, you know, that has to change. But I think those of us that are from the indigenous side of things are willing are willing to work with institutions to help support that work in terms of education and, and awareness and training and such like that. Also, I think that you know, for I would recommend, I guess, that way is that, you know, for young young settler scientists is to really think about, you know, getting their motivation. A lot of times, you know, in this, this era, um, you know, people are in a rush, in a hurry to do something. And I always remind people to go back and really, you know, check your motivation, why you want to do this work again. And sometimes it starts with yourself. The more that you can have a greater understanding about your motivation, for this kind of work, because this work is really isn't easy, as you mentioned, that there's a lot of things that a, a scientist has to deal with today, I think, if he wants to be effective working with indigenous people. It's, it's additional things that he has. There's no turnkey solution to this kind of work. So it's really, I mean, you heard the term relationship building a lot. I always tell people there's no shortcuts. There's no mm-hmm. shortcuts to, do, to work with indigenous people. And I think that increasingly, if you look at the whole global landscape, we know that to mitigate climate change, Indigenous people from around the world has to have a major role in this work, because mm-hmm. a lot of that, a lot of that is on in their lands under their stewardship. So I think to to be successful, to be effective as a scientist, you know, having experience working with Indigenous people, Indigenous lands, Indigenous knowledge, is I'd strongly encourage that. Just because of the way the world's changing, and learning how to work with someone different than yourself is really important. And the more that you can do that kind of work, I think it prepares you to be a good scientist, to ask good questions and such. I think that's going to be such a challenge because for lots of reasons, people can be really impatient. They want the world to change for the better. And I often wonder if the urgency of climate change creates this tension between wanting to work quickly and the time and the trust that's needed to build these relationships. Do you have any advice for how to navigate that for folks who are frustrated because you know they're motivated by that sense of urgency and they're maybe butting up against this reality that these relationships just aren't built overnight? There's no turnkey solution, as you said. <laughs> well, that's a really good, yeah. no, that's a really good question. I think that you know, obviously, I think you know, I think it's important really to to take a look at the 
what's happening now. And I think you're going to find that there's a lot of indigenous organizations around the world in those key places to address climate change, like Canada, like the Arctic, I would say even Australia or, or, or even South America. I think you'll find a lot of indigenous organizations are, are, are working on these issues. So I think that it's not a, you're not, you're not going to start from zero, but I think it's going to take what I might call cultural brokers or traditional knowledge brokers really to come in and facilitate, maybe can expedite some of those relationship buildings. You need somebody kind of that can, that knows both, both, both systems and maybe they can come in and, and that, but cause that's what I do. That's the work I do is I, I come in and people have this idea or project and they want, we want to work here. I may know people there and then I start that facilitative process. I began to help educate people and bring people together so that they can decide, you know, if they want to go forward, things like that. You always find these bridge builders someplace in each community. And I think part of that process is to just become more aware and also more connected. I'm just really amazed by technology today. Um, A couple of days ago, I was on a call with indigenous people from Australia and they're planning a big national indigenous climate conference and they wanted to know about the work I'm doing. Um, I'm part of a new uh, global effort called the Geo-Indigenous Alliance. The vision is to sustain and protect tribal cultural heritage, utilizing earth observation, science, data, and technology. So a year ago, I was in Canberra, Australia, giving uh, the intervention on behalf of the United States. I was part of the United States delegation. And there we, we saw an opportunity to bring an authentic Indigenous voice into that work. While we know that earth observations is a key, important part to climate, research and monitoring and applications. And so we're, we're coming into that space now. And the Australian uh, indigenous folks um, knew that. I met them when I was in Australia. And so now we're, we're taking the next step in terms of building these, these global alliances with one another to understand how we can do this work. But to your question about time and expediency, I think, you know, we're also understanding that too as indigenous side. So, so, as a counter to the relationship building thing, I think indigenous people also recognizing that they also have to move quicker and to, I'm not sure, expedite the relationship building process. I'm not sure if that's a word, but but I think that, you know, there's a, you're right, there's an urgency and I heard them and Australia talk about that to me. So we're gonna participate with them and we're gonna come together and that's an open meeting for everybody that wanna be a part of it, listen in. And so we're ramping up in terms of our engagement process our readiness so that when opportunities come in terms of research or projects, you know, we want to be ready for that too, so that we can get done, uh, get done quicker or, or how that's going to meet the needs of the projects. Through your work, what are some things you feel you've learned from other indigenous communities outside the U.S.? Has there been something you learned that was particularly impactful to your own thinking? Yeah, well, in some ways, and we're, we're the same, but we're different, but we're the same. You know, when I was in Australia, for instance, you know, we had a, a little little convening among ourselves. A lot of our infrastructure at the indigenous level is, uh, you know, they need a lot of help, uh, particular in, in South America, and that their internet connection is not very good, yet they want to work with Earth observation. They have a real interest in working with satellite technology, which surprised me. They want to work with drones. So they're not afraid to embrace that technology. And I would guess one of the reasons why is, you know, they're really protecting they're at that mode of protecting their lands and their places and their cultures against development. To me, that was a realization again, that this isn't a academic exercise or a, a feel good 
because it's good thing technology wise. No, they want to look at every tool they can find to use to protect uh, their homelands. And that's where I guess reality for me was that as much as we're facing here in America, other indigenous people are really uh, facing with very limited resources, um, big development companies with a lot of money, a lot of technology, a lot of earth observations, and the whole idea of protecting and sustaining their life ways is a life of matter and death. And I looked at Africa, for instance, and how big Africa is. I didn't really understand that till I met people from Africa and they're sharing with me their work in terms of uh, cultural heritage and um, how they want to think about uh, their their people and their lands and their, their tenure and how they want to plan for climate change. And and so they really want to get use those observations. They mm-hmm. see a value in this and yet their infrastructure is still lacking um, and still, um, but the diversity of those indigenous people in Africa was tremendous. Uh, then I got to see uh, and meet people from the, uh, the Asian part of the world and, and those indigenous people and, and how, again, how they're, you know, working and struggling with nation states as well and trying to assert their sovereignty. And again, they see the role of, of mapping and collecting and monitoring the land to protect it. Uh, so it was, to me, it was inspiring. We were all reminded when we told our stories about our creation stories, for instance, of how similar they were and that we all have a responsibility for taking the earth and we still have spirituality to how we do that. And so we were exchanging um, stories best we could in our time we had together. Hmm. Uh, a lot of our, our indigenous societies are honor-based. So it was an honor to be in their present. It was an honor to hear their stories and to hear their prayers and their songs with us. And so we still have that today. And uh, each one of us is required to help sustain those things and protect our communities. And so uh, what a privilege to be a part of that. And so you know, that's guess that's how, it, how I see it. What you're saying here about connections among indigenous communities and how you're learning from each other sounds really powerful. And it makes me wonder about the ways in which indigenous knowledge recovery or reclamation has become a way for tribal communities to find empowerment as you foster stronger connections with your ancestors, with your cultures, and with each other. Of course, this knowledge is valuable for the practical reasons of climate change adaptation, but I'm also wondering about the process of gathering knowledge or reconnecting with lost or stolen knowledge. Has that been empowering for you? Oh, man, Jackie, you have to ask some hard questions. (laughs) <laughs> but they're really good questions. I, I enjoy it's a good question because I know you've, you're you're thinking about this. I think you're you're you are, you are right. I think that uh, because of you know the impact of colonization on tribal nations, for instance, in America, in particular my tribe, we're still recovering from that, which includes I'd say even use the word repatriation, repatriation of our knowledges, repatriation of our identity, repatriation of our homelands. We've never stopped working, even though it may not look like it. Uh, it's, it's very difficult, very difficult work. That's why I think that the role of tribal colleges are important in this discussion. Each tribal college, in the 30 I mentioned, has a cultural heritage center where they work day in, day out to not only gather uh, what's available now, but also um, seek ways to you know build upon that knowledge base um, based on their, on, on their particular culture. But that's only 30 out of 530 tribes across the country. So there's a lot of work to be done. Uh, I think that in terms of uh, knowledge repatriation, I think uh, there needs to be greater and greater collaboration between 
uh, indigenous people and uh, universities. Um, I think uh, museums. Um, I know you know that we have American Indian Museum in in New York City and in Washington mm -hmm. D.C. and they're great. Um, but I think each time you'll find story after story where people have found um, things in their basements, in their boxes, things that are very important to indigenous people. So I think part of the strategy as well is to really strengthen our laws and our policies so that uh, those repatriation efforts of those things can come back to tribe. At least tribes will have an opportunity to bring that back into their place as they see fit. Um, I think it's a part of our, um, our healing, which I haven't talked very much about today, but it's part of our healing as people because I do think we need to heal um, before we can reconcile. I think there has to be acknowledgement of these things that happened to us too. Mm -hmm. uh, I'll say this as well. I know President Obama um, put in sort of an official apology to American Indian people in America. But again, how many people know that and, and what's being done to implement that? So there's a lot of work to be done. Again, I think that awareness of those issues are important. Even looking at things like the National Climate Assessment I was nominated to be an author uh, on that. Uh, I, I don't know if I, I, I was accepted, but I know if I if I do get an authorship opportunity to write for the national assessment, I'm certainly going to focus on uh, cultural heritage and and begin mm -hmm. to raise those issues and assess where we're at right now in terms of our stuff, our tribal our tribal knowledge, and and really promote again tribal colleges, universities, because you know those co tribal colleges are some of the biggest demographic in terms of indigenous people and land. So there's a lot really to be gleaned, a lot to be learned from those institutions and to really support them so they can do the work that they need to be done as well. So James, I know that you've recently received some funding for the Rising Voices Project. Can you tell our listeners about that project and how the project empowers indigenous communities around their own data sovereignty? Well, I think what I try to share with you today in my disorganized way is really is <laughs> what we're trying to do and what I try to do is contribute to tribal self-determination and tribal sovereignty. One of those key elements to that is our own information, our own data on ourselves and our lands and our people and our resources. And I think that really goes back to what our elders taught us and what they did for us in terms of setting up these treaties and other, other mechanisms and how they did it from a nation to nation basis. I really think good data leads to good governance. And this project at Rising Voices is really to begin to um, really assess the role of data in terms of tribal governance. I always go back to governance because part of tribal sovereignty is really supporting tribal governments and how they make laws, how they make policies to protect their homelands and things like that. I think what we're finding in this project, for instance, as we reach out to our tribal thought leaders in our region, North Central region, which we're focusing on right now, is that there is a need um, for greater understanding of the role of data uh, with tribes, and I think tribes they understand they have data, they know that part, but but how do they how do we think about the idea of data sovereignty? How do we talk about and build our infrastructure to practice and implement data sovereignty? Mm -hmm. How do we develop laws and policies and codes to protect data sovereignty? And then how do we negotiate uh, with organizations that want to work with us uh, to use data and how to develop data? And as you mentioned in terms of research. I think the other part is really looking at, you know, we have a framework right now with that project that's really gonna utilize organizations like the North Central Climate Adaptation Science Center, um, University of Colorado Boulder Earth Lab. So there's tremendous organizations that, that wanna be part of this data 
uh, sovereignty initiative, we got a good start in terms of um, understanding the issues in a deeper way. And so it's a big it's a big undertaking, but we know that there's other organizations that are, are looking at the same thing, and that we hope that in the next year, that you know we can begin to pilot some efforts. And I think the Rosebud going back to the Rosebud project, climate adaptation planning, there's going to be a strong data component. It's a small piece of it will be data, but I think it's going to be the beginning of what we call um, indigenous data management systems at the tribal level. Hmm. And that's going to be looking at, you know, the technology, looking at workflow, looking at policy, looking at culture, all those aspects that we I've talked about this whole hour that that's important to uh, nation building. So we're always in this nation building mode. Uh, we're not where we need to be, but we think that data will have a key part in that. What do you find exciting about the future of tribal leadership and climate change? Well, the first one I would say is um, the nomination of Deb Holland to be Secretary of Interior. You know, as you know, she's the first Native uh, Native person to be nominated for a secretarial level position, and we're all excited about what she can do. Um, I think we have to we have to find ways to support her um, here on the ground level. I think we have to bring our ideas to her, and I think data is going to be one of them. I would love to see uh, the role how she looks at data um, mm-hmm. as an Interior person. I would look at also ask her to think we think about uh, cultural heritage again not only on tribal lands but also going back to the national parks you probably heard about the bears ears monument you know mm-hmm. uh, issue and how that really brought to the forefront the role of tribes in management of those parks so i think that the more and more tribes can be involved in the co-management of these lands where we have ancestral homeland ties i think that would be more and more opportunities for tribal members uh, to seek those kind of jobs and careers, to do those kind of job, do those kind of, kind of work, I think in the, in that we can bring management uh, frameworks that will incorporate traditional knowledge into that, which maybe hasn't happened before. Maybe it has, but maybe we can create greater greater opportunities to bring indigenous perspectives into the management of those parklands that maybe she has uh, purview over. I would love to see more and more opportunities where we can tell our stories as part of the park story in those places. Um, I think places matter. Tribes still have vested interest in these places like Yellowstone and some of these really prominent places. And I think more of our tribal presence, uh, tribal story uh, would be helpful in terms of advancing the cause um, for all of us. And finally, I would also say uh, a new opportunity that we're working at the University of Colorado Boulder. Uh, we submitted a, a NSF grant for a fire resilience institute and this is for the Western United States. As you know, fire, you know, was a great impact this last year, particularly California. Mm-hmm. And so we've talked about, the, you know, good fire and bad fire. We talk about the role of traditional knowledge in fire and how we live with fire now as human beings. And so uh, that, that institute will have a strong component of indigenous knowledge. And so we're, we're going to be working with tribes in California who have been working on prescribed burning, prescribed burning training, uh, teaching about the role of traditional knowledge in that work. And we're excited that if we get this funding, um, it's going to be another opportunity really to bring our knowledges into contributing to uh, possible solutions and greater opportunities for our people in the West. So things like that. Plus, finally, I'd say one one plug um, for a new program we have at the University of Colorado called the Tribal Climate Leaders Program. It's a two-year fellowship for master's students, and we have five core students right now they're starting their second semester and so we think that those things are important that we all got to do that 
each institution uh, got to continue to find uh, ways to um, get more of our native students in graduate level courses so that they can be more effective in their tribes. So education will always be part of our work. And I'm, I'm excited to see as they finish out the second uh, semester, they're right now they're designing their research projects. Thank you for the great conversation today, James. I learned so much and I really appreciate your perspective on how to effectively work alongside indigenous communities to adapt to climate change. Well, first of all, I just want to, you know, thank, thank you guys for the invitation to speak with you today. And as you mentioned, you know, the idea of uh, social justice and, um, and the role of tribal nations today. I mean, every once in a while, you know, we'll get like through the Standing Rock event at moments in time in our history in America, we get these big moments, big events. Here's, indigenous people are still around. We're still here. We as a Native people as, as well need to do a better job of participating in some of these kind of new media um, new media outlets, uh, communications. And I, I just encourage um, your listeners and those uh, from the Indigenous side of things that, that we just do got to do a better job of telling our story and that we have to be engaged and that we know that we have allies um, out there that we've seen that want to work with us to do sort of do the right thing. We just got to get involved and, and um, amplify our voice. So I appreciate the audience today. I appreciate you listening. And hopefully uh, I said something helpful um, to you and your audience. So I appreciate it. So I would say, Wopi Latanka, Ichi Chapalo. Thank you all very much. Thank you so much, James. Thank you so much, James. Hey everyone, producer Justin Shell here. Instead of a data story this week, we wanted to highlight another podcast you should check out, Good Fire, which is co-hosted by Matthew Kristoff and Amy Cardinal Christensen. Here's Amy to tell you more. Hi, this is Amy Cardinal Christensen from the Canadian Forest Service, and I'm a Métis woman from northern Canada from Treaty 6 and Treaty 8 territories from the Cardinal and Labakan families. And I just wanted to invite everyone to um, come and listen to our podcast, Good Fire, Stories of Indigenous Fire Stewardship. In this podcast, Matt and I talk with Indigenous people um, from Australia and the U.S. and Venezuela about um, the concept of fire as a tool for ecological health and cultural empowerment by Indigenous people around the globe. So good fire is a term uh, we use to describe fire that is intentionally lit to achieve specific ecological and cultural goals. And Good Fire is about balance. And so if you're interested, um, you can find it on any podcast platform. And that's Good Fire, Stories of Indigenous Fire Stewardship. Thanks so much. As you've heard from James, there are many aspects of climate data and Indigenous data sovereignty that intersect with larger notions of Indigenous sovereignty and traditional knowledge that are key to building respectful collaborations around climate change. We wanted to explore the ideas around data sovereignty a bit more. Fortunately, there are groups such as the Native Data Bio Consortium and the U.S. Indigenous Data Sovereignty Network, whose key focus is to ensure that data related to Indigenous groups are collected and used in a way that benefits Indigenous peoples. Our second guest, Crystal Sozi, is a geneticist and bioethicist and is also the co-founder of the Native Biodata Consortium. The consortium is the first 501c3 nonprofit research institute led by indigenous scientists and tribal members in the United States, and so we thought she would be great to talk with us about indigenous data sovereignty.
So Crystal, thank you so much for talking with us today. Um, let's just go ahead and dive right in. For our listeners who might not be familiar with this concept, what is Indigenous data sovereignty? Can you unpack this idea for us? Sure. So Indigenous data sovereignty is the right for Indigenous nations and people to govern the collection, ownership, and application of their own data. It derives from tribes' inherent right to self-govern and exercise autonomy related to their people's lands and resources. And that definition comes straight from the United States Indigenous Data Sovereignty Network, or the USIDSN. I just view myself as an academic who's trying to promote Indigenous data sovereignty, specifically related to genomic data. It is my belief as an Indigenous geneticist and bioethicist that Genomic data should benefit the indigenous peoples and communities from whom that data has been derived. It's a promise that is often made to indigenous peoples, particularly in precision medicine and precision health research, but it's not often actually followed through. Mm -hmm. So for instance, just as a for instance, just to recap the last 20 plus years of, of genomics, Genomics and genetics is a relatively young field, so the last 20 years have brought a lot of advancements, such as the completion of the human genome, advances in sequencing technologies, also the ability to collect large amounts of genomes from peoples all over around the world, and also being able to collect that data in large data sets. These are huge innovations that have not always incorporated Indigenous people. Indigenous people have, for many reasons, either participated in low numbers or actively disengaged from genomics research for a variety of cultural reasons. But a large portion of Indigenous people's hesitance to engage in genomics is related to, of course, what's going to happen to their samples, and then mm -hmm. now what's going to happen to their data. Data right now is a really heavily sought after commodity. Commodification of indigenous genomes is particularly well sought after today as it was 20 years ago. There's always concerns about patenting of indigenous genomes, biocommercialization of indigenous genomes. And that reality is born true when we consider just how much money is involved in creating new technologies and therapies related to um, underrepresented people in genomics research. So I'm curious to know, how do ideas of indigenous data sovereignty intersect with broader issues of indigenous sovereignty? Data sovereignty is an extension of indigenous sovereignty. But the important thing is that indigenous sovereignty is our ability as peoples to self-determine and self-govern. It exists without being affirmed by colonial structures. We should not need some outside authority to tell us indigenous people how to govern our data. But unfortunately, that is what persists for many people within and outside of North American people. I unfortunately think too much within a U.S.-centric perspective because I'm a member of and work for tribal communities within the U.S., but we have to acknowledge that there's heterogeneity in how our sovereign authority is recognized. There are many indigenous nations whose existence are not recognized, and there are many indigenous people who, due to assimilation and termination policies that try to remove us from our own lands, reside off of tribal lands outside of the jurisdiction of tribal research regulations. So, for instance, this includes a lot of urban natives, 
in the last 2010 U.S. Census showed that three quarters of um, U.S. Native Americans lived outside of the tribal communities. And even though we have now 574 federally recognized tribes within the U.S., that doesn't include state-recognized tribes or tribes who are still struggling to find recognition. It totally disincludes um, the special status Native Hawaiians. And that's, again, within a U.S. perspective. That doesn't even include global indigenous populations. That doesn't include, for instance, indigenous peoples in Central and South America whose existence isn't even recognized by the governments in which, you know, whose structures they live under. So we really have to think about if we're going to decolonize ourselves, we also have to think that sovereignty exists outside of colonial recognition. So what was your path into this work on bioethics? Sure. I've actually started as a cancer biologist at the bench, and it was my intention to pursue a PhD in cancer biology. And at the time, all other cancer biologists told me not to pursue that field because it was oversaturated. But my moment of Hmm. reckoning came when I first started a doctoral program in cancer biology. And I came to the realization that first, there aren't that many indigenous peoples in, in science But if I were to develop a technology or patent a drug that would perhaps cure or treat cancer, the harsh reality is that those technologies and therapies would probably benefit people who are more economically well-off than my own people. And I came to the realization that I really should be working to bring more proximal health solutions to my own communities and my own people. And that route wasn't in cancer biology. Uh, So I actually returned to Arizona State University to pursue a master's in bioethics, intending to pursue a career in law. So when you're you're Diné or Navajo, you're basically taught that if you go to college and you graduate, you're to pursue one of four fields. You're either to become a doctor, a lawyer, an engineer, or a teacher. So I thought, you know, scientist is not one of those. So I thought striking out in the science field, I'd pursue law. Hmm. But it so happens that um, Arizona State University was mired in the aftermath of a very infamous landmark lawsuit, the Havasupai tribe versus the Arizona Board of Regents. And this is an infamous lawsuit because what ended up happening was a violation of trust. The Havasupai Nation participated in a research study with some ASU researchers to study type 2 diabetes. But what ended up happening is um, the researcher in question started using that data to publish on other subjects that the tribe did not feel like they consented to. Things like schizophrenia, um, looking at population migration theories that were acultural to their own. The Havasupai have their own origin story in that they actually originated from the base of the Grand Canyon, which is where their community is. And that, as one would probably know, is is different than the Bering Strait hypothesis that many geneticists use as a population history narrative. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, there were other um, types of questions related to like allegations of inbreeding 
that, of course, are negative stereotypes that are conferred upon Indigenous peoples. It took a community member attending a student's doctoral dissertation defense to realize that her people's uh, samples and DNA were being used in in this manner that she didn't feel like was something that her people knew about or even had consented to. So this is a lawsuit that the tribe had not settled could have bankrupted the Arizona Board of Regents. And at this time in the early 2000s, tribal nations around the world were similarly thinking about disengaging from genomics because there were concerns of privatization and commercial usage of their indigenous genetic information. As I was pursuing my master's in bioethics, I was studying this case as well as other genetic controversies that have occurred in particularly American Indian communities or Native American communities. And it made me realize that if indigenous peoples wanted to use this technology, and that's a huge if, then that we really needed more indigenous scientists at the helm of doing the research in partnership with the communities. There's growing interest in collaborating with indigenous peoples around climate change adaptation and climate change broadly. What are some of the best practices for respectful collaboration, particularly around data management and data sharing in ways that prioritize indigenous sovereignty? So in 2016, something called the FAIR Principles for Guiding Scientific Data Management Stewardship was published in Scientific Data FAIR is an acronym for findability, accessibility, interoperability, and reuse of digital assets. So really, these are principles garnered on how to machine read um, metadata and data, how to gain access and authorization in an open, free format, and how to integrate and optimize reuse of data. But it's interesting that the FAIR principles are centered in terms of justice and equity for ease of the researchers using the data and not necessarily the people from whom that data was derived. It asks the question, for whose benefit is the data actually serving? So Mm. somewhere along the recent history of, in my field, biomedical research and public health, data became totally separated from the human element. It became Mm. what's called secondary data, and it is exempt from most IRBs or Institutional Review Board review processes. And this is possibly the first difference between how research is regulated in academic constructs versus tribal constructs. In academic and biomedical research, we silo human subjects research versus non-human subjects research. And sometimes Mm -hmm. these distinctions differ even depending on which country you're working with. So for instance, microbiome data or data derived from your gut might be considered human subjects research in some countries, whereas in the U.S. it's considered non-human subjects research, even though it's data literally from within our our gut um, intestines. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting how these distinctions differ in different contexts. We have to realize that tribes govern research more holistically in RRBs or research review boards, which are more broad in the type of data that they steward. They're not just looking at human subjects research or limited to biomedical research, but they're looking at data from all kinds of research, particularly related to cultural data. This comes from a greater sense of stewardship that we as Indigenous people must take care and safeguard everything that surrounds us, including the biodiversity environment that surrounds us. 
So ultimately, we are all connected. It's important that we recognize our responsibility in that role in that interconnectivity and relationality. And relationality is the, the key word here. Certainly in terms of the environment and data, we must think of stewardship beyond just how that data serves our immediate aims. Uh, that's mm -hmm. why the U.S. Indigenous Data Sovereignty Network collaborated with other Indigenous groups and came up with the CARE principles for Indigenous data governance. And the CARE principles are collective benefit, authority to control, responsibility, and ethics. So really emphasizing inclusivity and engagement of Indigenous peoples, recognizing rights and interests related to governance, emphasizing relationality, especially in terms of Indigenous worldviews, and really recognizing these power dynamics. So that kind of brings us a little bit full circle between the FAIR principles and how we get to CARE principles by recognizing that data cannot be siloed. There's a data ecosystem that we as Indigenous peoples recognize and operate within. And it's just a matter of time of hoping that other people see our viewpoints. That makes me wonder about what even constitutes data in the first place and how our conception or our treatment of data might differ across cultures or communities. As just one example, I'm wondering whether Western and Indigenous data management practices are ever at odds with one another. It's actually really interesting. I taught elementary statistics, and I just went back to our textbook that we use. And from the very beginning, we teach how to describe and categorize data, like, for instance, qualitative versus quantitative or discrete versus continuous. But other than saying that data is everywhere, I'm not really satisfied with any one definition of data or singular datum. Mm -hmm. In many uses, a, a datum is just a bit of information that's collected through observation. I'm not sure if that particular definition changes across cultures, but what does change is what we value and how we value it. Hmm. For instance, I attended a data conference in North Dakota, and this was the first time that I heard of winter counts being referred to as a form of data. Hmm. Now, I'm not a Lakota person. I'm a indigenous person from the Southwest. Uh, so it was not until I moved or worked in the Dakotas region very familiar with winter counts. But winter count is essentially a timeline or a calendar in which the most significant event of the year is recorded. The lone dog winter count was drawn on a buffalo hide. It's probably the most famous example of a winter count. Thus, being the keeper of the winter count is actually an important role as an oral historian and also for stewarding that data. So to me, this is a perfect example for exemplifying like how within a culture or cultures, how data can be valued differently and how the person that's in charge of stewarding that data might be given a celebrated or exalted role within the society just for being you know, the steward of that data. So in terms of, for instance, other types of, of research, for instance, climate and environmental data, you know, there's also this notion of, of relationality, again, because when we're talking about an indigenous construct, we are not just talking about, you know, the data from humans, but also everything that we're connected to thinking in terms of plant knowledge, and again, mm. going back to cancer biology, there is actually a history of extracting indigenous knowledge related to our medicinal knowledge. 
Mm. Aspirin is a great example. Aspirin derives from the willow trees and knowledge that this particular bioderivative could be used for treating a variety of ailments is a form of indigenous knowledge that has been extracted from us. I can't imagine how much the pharmaceutical industry owes us now <laughs> for that type of knowledge. And yet that type of extractivism still exists in pharmaceutical research. There's a lot of interest in, for instance, going into the rainforest and trying to see if there are any untapped resources that could provide some sort of medicinal benefit that originates from indigenous people's knowledge. Hmm. Let's see, the white sage is another example. You know, white sage is something that, and, and other types of sages are something that indigenous people have used for sacred purposes, for cleansing our, you know, our environments and, you know, just in, in a ceremonial fashion. And it's something that's been co-opted by the white dominant culture. And you see it now in, you know, hand lotions and there's an article that was written about a woman that wanted to go and harvest sage for her own um, smudging purposes and year after year found it more difficult to find the sage just because other, you know, bioprospectors would come and just raise the areas that they would use mm. for picking the sage and they would just come with garbage bags full of just you know picking up bushels of sage just so that they could sell it for these mass marketed use that's a form of appropriation actually it's a form of exploitation it's a um, kind of a mini rant of mine that I think we overuse the term cultural appropriation when we really should be using the stronger cultural exploitation, especially when it relates to monetary gain from indigenous people's knowledges and wisdom. As there's this growing interest in these kinds of partnerships and this co-production of knowledge, what are some of the biggest knowledge gaps that you find in non-Native researchers as you've engaged in this work? What do you think people should know before they begin to engage with tribal communities? A huge issue for me, particularly in my field, is that non-Indigenous researchers consider genomic and health data to be separate from human subjects' data, and or they consider a form of justice to share it with other researchers without consulting communities. I can't tell you how annoyed I am, especially considering all the racial unrest that occurred last year that finally brought some of these racial tensions to public eye that we as Indigenous peoples know to occur in an everyday life. That nowadays, like academics view justice, but their form of justice and their form of increasing inclusion means, at least in genomics, sticking more of Indigenous people's DNA on a plate, <laughs> on an array, to be able to include us in studies. It doesn't, you know, address the reason why we as Indigenous people don't partake in research. It's just a, a new means of extractivism. It's a new means of exploitation, but under the guise of justice and inclusion. Inclusion doesn't mean anything without equity. And equity entails us having 
a seat at the table, not just like a token seat at the table, but a seat where our viewpoints and what we have to say is actually taken seriously. And in terms of an example, like I've heard of researchers who misuse and don't understand the boundaries between stewardship and ownership of data. And and because they think of data as being devoid of the human element, they just think of data as like a spreadsheet, a series of of rows and, and, and columns on which data is just collected that they can use for their own purposes. I've heard of examples of researchers who share their data with their graduate students for their graduate students to be able to pursue their own career advancement in terms of creating like a master's or a doctoral dissertation using tribal data, but without going back to the tribes who are asking for permission. And that's actually like this whole notion of permission and consent is really important. I think that researchers, and I've heard researchers state, that they think it's too burdensome to reconsent participants or tribes to ask them for permission for their data. So if we think about the last, again, 20 years in genomics research, we first started off with broad consent in which, you know, individuals were asked at the point of which their sample is collected, you know, do you agree to have your sample being used for the betterment of humankind? You know, it was really cloaked in such vague, broad terms. And, you know, researchers would then use this broad language to justify, you know, the work that occurred with the Havasupai tribe versus the Arizona Board of Regents uh, lawsuit. That's the pitfalls related to broad consenting. So because of these issues and challenges and ethical questions about broad consenting, you know, for instance, are we granting too much agency and authority to researchers who are maybe self-interested in doing research for their own means and not necessarily the communities? We started switching to like study-specific informed consent in which anytime the study changed, the study design altered, or there was a change in the protocol, researchers would have to go and re-consent participants. Problem is, is that community engagement is not really well-funded in research. It wasn't then, it still isn't now. So, you know, researchers who don't know how to engage with anything outside of the uh, Petri dish were then tasked with going out into communities, particularly in geographically isolated or highly mobile populations, to try to track down participants. Um, to reconsent them for the data. And now that we're in this big data era in which data is harmonized across multiple streams, that you know really necessary step of just asking participants, do you consent to have your data used for this new thing? That entire step has just been removed. Now we've removed the human element. It's called secondary data now. Now, you know, we're going back to this broad consenting um, model that was so problematic in the past without, again, addressing, you know, the equity behind these data decisions. So that makes me wonder about the whole open science revolution, this idea that science should be shared and accessible. And I wonder, do you feel like there's any conflict here between open science and indigenous data sovereignty, or is there a way forward? So if we think about open data, again, it's always talked about, oh, it's going to democratize research, Mm -hmm. a term that I hate because (laughs) 
what system of democracy are we referring to? It's probably the American democracy. We really shouldn't be modeling anything after the American system of democracy after we just <laughs> saw what happened in the last election. Right. And it's not our indigenous form of democracy either. This is a democracy that we're referring to in which it's supposedly going to benefit the most, right? Well, as long as that is the system that's being overvalued here, then small populations like indigenous communities will always be de-emphasized in this system of democracy. Mm. So I always hate this phrase of, oh, open data is going to democratize as if it's supposed to be the same as equity, because it's not. (laughs) And that's always, you know, in open data, again, is always couched in terms of creating fewer barriers for researchers. It benefits the researchers completely and does not benefit the communities or the people if the people don't have a say in what happens to their data. So I don't want to say that, you know, Indigenous data sovereignty cannot coexist with the open data movement because there are mechanisms, and I feel like the Native Biodata Consortium, which is the Indigenous-led research nonprofit that I helped co-found, is a potential solution. So, for instance, our nonprofit exists for tribes that perhaps want to engage in research but don't believe that their data should be deposited in a federal database like, like dbGaP, the Database of Genotypes and Phenotypes. Many U.S. tribes do not want to participate in federally funded research because of this requirement to deposit their data in a repository that they have no control over. But if tribes could deposit their data in a tribally managed repository, the story could be different. Our aim is to allow tribes to utilize their tribal sovereignty to regulate and limit researchers' jurisdictions over the samples and data that come from their communities. So it's not necessarily blocking open data. It's just ensuring that all data venues toward accessing tribal data have to be governed by tribes. And what's wrong with that? What's wrong with telling um, researchers that if they want to access tribal data, that they have to seek the permission of the tribes from whom that data is collected? Like To me, that is equity and justice right there not just this free-for-all in which mm-hmm. research is harmonized across multiple different streams and, and tribal members have no idea where the data is being housed or for what purposes or for whose benefit or who, for whose commercial benefit. Do you think that there are particular barriers that need to be overcome in order to build successful collaborations between Indigenous communities and non-Native researchers? A large number of the barriers that we have to overcome is training non-Indigenous researchers to respect and work within tribal research regulatory bounds. And unfortunately, what happens is for a number of non-Indigenous researchers, they either do not know or find it too cumbersome to be trained to figure out Hmm. who is the tribal research regulatory structure that they need to seek permissions from and, you know, how to navigate tribal RRB procedures or tribal research committee procedures. And if they find it too cumbersome, then what I've seen happen is that non-indigenous researchers just might recruit tribal people that live in urban or suburban areas and just decide nope, I don't want to deal with tribal research regulations. I'm just going to go recruit somebody in Phoenix. And that's a shame. That's unfortunate. That's circumventing tribal sovereignty. 
And that's yeah. not something that we want to see or advocate, which is why we're hoping that tribes understand that their sovereignty doesn't necessarily end at the boundaries of their tribal lands, that oh. it can be extended to the individual. We've seen that for some smaller tribes where our research protection laws are centered around the tribal citizen, regardless of where they live. We just haven't seen that play out in court yet. We know that these collaborations take a lot of work and time, and there's also really good reasons for tribal communities to not trust non-natives who are sort of swooping in from the outside, especially because of this history of knowledge extraction and theft. Do you have any advice for folks who want to engage in this kind of research, but who might not know where to begin to build a truly ethical partnership? If you're a non-Indigenous researcher, you do not get to call yourself an ally. Allyship is something that's defined by the communities, not by yourself. Mm. Um, that's really important to say in this in this climate. But there's a growing number of Indigenous scientists and academics to partner with. And I want to really emphasize the word partnership. What I have seen, unfortunately, a very recent example of, has occurred to me at the beginning of this year where some non-Indigenous researchers emailed me asking me for resources on Indigenous data sovereignty for an NSF grant that they were applying for. And my pushback was, why are you asking me for resources about mm -hmm. Indigenous data sovereignty rather than partnering with an Indigenous scientist or academic or community member yourself? If you were to just take our knowledge and use it for a grant, that in itself is a form of knowledge extracted from our communities. Yeah. And I, I see that, unfortunately, especially as Indigenous science and decolonizing and indigenizing science become buzzwords for non-Indigenous or white academics to use for them to expand their their curricula, but without including Indigenous peoples actually doing the work. Too often I hear the question, what can we learn from Indigenous peoples about X? Hmm. That type of phrasing is problematic because it assumes that Indigenous knowledge is only worthwhile when it's for the benefit of other people. Hmm. So I just want to caution mm -hmm. everybody to avoid using that phrasing and to understand that Indigenous knowledge is valuable in any context. And it's not necessarily a dynamic of Indigenous versus non-Indigenous or Western dynamics. It's just different ways or different lenses of looking at the same question. You know, there are more non-Indigenous peoples doing research than there are Indigenous peoples. That's always going to be the case, unfortunately. But what non-Indigenous peoples can do is try to promote the work of Indigenous peoples and work with them, particularly because there's a power dynamic that's at play. And if they want to be on the right side of history, then they need to be able to propel those that are actually doing the work for the benefit of their own peoples. Warm Regards is produced by Justin Schell. Joe Stormer creates our transcripts and Catherine Pinehart is our social media maven. Music for this episode comes from Blue Dot Sessions. 
You can find a transcript of this episode, listen to previous episodes, and find links to subscribe via the podcast platform of your choice on our website, warmregardspodcast.com. Also, something that really helps more people learn about our show is if you could leave a quick review or rating, especially on Apple Podcasts. You can reach us at ourwarmregards at gmail.com or find us on Twitter at ourwarmregards. This season of Warm Regards is made possible by our patrons on Patreon, like Bobble Winkler. Their donations help pay our great team members, Justin, Joe, and Catherine, for all their hard work. If you're interested in supporting the show, you can go to patreon.com slash warmregards. There's also a link to the page in our show notes and website. From all of us at Warm Regards, thanks for letting us into your head.